First, I'd like just to extend my congratulations to the Portland group. I've, I've heard many, many, many good reports about you in the past, and this is my first visit here, and to be visiting this new center that you have the courage to take on, because it takes a lot of guts to do this, I think. I'm sure you haven't got a penny in the bank. <laughs> it's kind of Buddhist karma, isn't it? But it's a beautiful thing to do. And uh, it's a gift to many, many people. So those of you, I don't, I don't know you that well, I, but any, you know, those of you who are involved in this intimately and are you know, putting the time in and so on, many sadhus to you, because uh, it's, it's, it's certainly not a simple thing. It requires quite a lot of self-sacrifice. Um, so I'd like to just extend my anamotana to you for, for uh, being uh, so visionary. Huh? And, and I realize you've been at, you've had a center for, for a long, long time. So, satu, 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 satu. You know, satu means, um, in English, means it's like a high five. <laughs> so, okay. I've been involved in quite a few monasteries and uh, centers, uh, and it's uh, been my life, really. And the sense of living, living the Dhamma, both as a, a personal practice and also as a as a as a um, social endeavor. Uh, I've been fortunate that way that I've not had to. I've, I think I worked for money for one year of my life, so <laughs> I tell people I've never had a job. But to to be able to give oneself to something like this and for lay people then but to still have to maintain your own household duties and so on it's it's uh, it's quite a grand task so I wish I wish you well in that um, I'd like to I'd like to just reflect on this idea of making things conscious but before that perhaps just to always remind you and I'm sure you know this is that the context of, of the Buddhist teachings is always in the context of, of a good social life, not a not a good social life in terms of going to Starbucks a lot, but uh, a wholesome social life, uh, a life where we are responsible in our family, we, we, we're morally responsible for how we live our lives. And so the ethical component of Buddhism is very important and the and the liberal heart and the heart of generosity that the Buddha suggested is they're really the foundations of, of a good meditative life and contemplative life in a life which lacks moral definition which lacks um, a generous heart can of, can of course lead to a, a meditative life which is very narcissistic and self-centered and self-oriented which isn't really the point of the business um, so, the taking of precepts, the living a life of truthfulness, nonviolence, sobriety, communication, which is sensitive and 
and, and um, meaningful, um, a life which is not bound by corrupt mind states, a life which is not not influenced by uh, a lack of clarity. So, like a sober life, you know, like a clear life, a good life. Uh, this this is this is a very important thing. And then the expression, the way we express ourselves in society through. Uh, how can I serve? How can I give? How can I make your life one which is uh, helps you to, to practice the Dhamma? This kind of living of life of goodness leads to a, a heart which has a lot of confidence, that has a lot of self-respect. Uh, and those are important factors in, in, uh, in, in developing spiritual practice. So, Nopo Sumedho is very generous in the way he always encourages us to, to remember that. Remember the goodness of your life. You do remember that even though you might you know, watch, watch too many YouTubes or whatever, you're still keeping the precepts or you know, you, you maybe you insulted someone at work, but you haven't killed them. <laughs> you know, that, that sometimes we can exaggerate the errors of judgment that we do have in our, in our social interactions and then we somehow dwell on those errors and those um, limitations, and then we we lose sight that uh, that there is a tremendous amount of goodness in our hearts that we don't intend to hurt other people. It happens. We don't intend to do that. Um, and that sense of encouraging your own practice is something I think many Westerners. I certainly have always found it difficult. I can always um, find all kinds of faults in myself, uh, and and then forget the goodness, the goodness of my life. So. Uh, how do you do that? I don't. Some people think, well, that's being arrogant, but it's not, is it? It's true. You do it with someone else, don't you? Someone else is living a wholesome life, living a good life yourself. Yeah, they think they're good. Uh, you might not do that to yourself. So, so do remember that 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 the goodness of the heart that you express and the various ways you live your life is is something to be honored, something to be respected in in your own heart. Um, I got bit by a wasp at the hermitage the other day, so I'm itching. Uh, I was at the, the hermitage uh, yesterday, and it was uh, a really lovely, lovely, lovely day. We, we chanted the Patimoka, and uh, the bhikkhus were so very generous and kind. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a beautiful environment. And my far- first thought was, oh, it's a nicer monastery than I've got. <laughs> So I'd like to talk about that. <laughs> Making things conscious. So in this, um, in this meditation, I, I suggested listen to sound. So what, what, what do I need to do to listen to sound? Well, I need to come to the present moment. And I, I need to make myself available to sound. Simple enough. And then I have to kind of wait, don't I? And then sound becomes conscious. And then I make the same suggestion about the body. Um, feel feelings, say, the, the pressure of, of, the, of the ground on the body, the body on the ground. And I suggest make that, let that become conscious. So what do we need to do? I need to be available to that. So I need to be present. And then as I'm available and present and I wait... 
the feelings in the legs become present, become conscious. The body becomes feeling, as I say. Hmm? That's not. It's not very. That's not rocket science, is it? And it's not an opinion. And it is the knowing the way things are, and not not knowing in a sense of a judgment about the way things are, but actually pre-verbally, before I make any comment about this moment, I can know it. It can, it can come into into consciousness, and so that for me is a very important principle in cultivating the path, just to get that principle. So I, I like to think of it as a, as a kind of point of balance, point of presence. And it's not far away. It's not very far away. Now apply that principle to something more difficult, like discomfort. Okay, so let's say I am meditating and I've determined to sit for 45 minutes and I hear the buzz of a mosquito which starts to hover around my head. And what usually happens is, of course, get rid of it, do something about it, which is fine. I could, I could get a mosquito net out or I could try to catch it with my little mosquito catcher or I could leave the room, I could stop meditating. So I could do all that and that, that would be fine. That would be, a, and especially like if, If there was malaria or dengue fever, I would do that. It would be foolish of me. Or if there's a whole horde of mosquitoes floating around my head, it would be foolish to just sit there. But let's say I decide to be aware of this experience of the mosquito. And what it is, is it becomes an experience of discomfort. And listening to sound, to make that conscious, it's neutral. I don't feel threatened by it, unless it became very ugly in some way. But in this case, it's pretty neutral, and so it's quite easy to do. Now, apply the same principle to something more difficult, like discomfort. That's more difficult to do, because I don't want this particular experience. I don't want the mosquito to bite me. I don't want the mosquito in my room or in my meditation hall. I want to get rid of it. So just to become conscious of something that I don't want takes a different kind of an effort. Or it takes an extraordinary kind of effort. So, any of you who've meditated with mosquitoes, I, I do it a lot. <laughs> um, the the first hearing of that sound is unpleasant, right? And all the perceptions in the mind is, oh no. <laughs> so if I now going back to making something fully conscious, what would I have to do? I'd have to stop resisting it, wouldn't I? I'd have to stop resisting the sound and say, oh, let, let sound become conscious. So what would I be doing? I'd be you know, going against the, the desire to get rid of, and I would be with the very sound itself. And if I do that, and if we do that, what happens is the sound becomes neutral. Because I see that the sound actually is just the sound. It's doing what sounds do. But my resistance to it is the problem. My resistance is the problem. So I become fully conscious, not just of sound now, but also of resistance. And that's important because a lot of life is uncomfortable. And we have a lot of resistance to discomfort. And being human, we have to get our head around that. Because we're not going to be comfortable all the time. It's impossible. So, it becomes actually not just about me enduring this mosquito, which is just a willful act. It's not really mindful. 
contemplation or investigation. It becomes a kind of inquiry into, well, how does consciousness work? How does the, the mind work? How does it work around discomfort? And then if you take that lesson, then that applies to all discomforts. Simple enough. But what do I have to do? I have to actually take the time to let this situation become conscious and allow my attention to notice how it works so that an intuitive sense of desire, aversion, uh, the unpleasant, the letting go of that, all those words that we use, an intuitive insight arises because I allow it to happen. I allow the situation to be as it is. So, I'm sitting there, there's the buzzing sound, and I know, I, know, I just say to myself, let this, let this be fully conscious. And I notice the resistance. And then I notice the resistance and it can come to neutrality. Then the little fellow lands in my ear. Right? Starts to embroider my left earlobe. And that is unpleasant. Right? So then, then I, then I don't know how you work. It's some, before you say, okay, I'm just going to endure this. Yeah, take my blood. Okay. And then it'll be over. But that's not mindful. That's just willful again. And now I'm going to make fully conscious the feeling, the physical feeling, the physical sensation of this little critter on my left earlobe. And that's, again, that's unpleasant. That's uncomfortable. But it's not life-threatening. That's the beauty of it. You know, it's something you can really learn from. So, oh, and then it bites me. Right? And then, and then there's that neutral part where it's just sucking my blood. And I, you know, you don't feel it, right? And then you sit down, and then you feel it withdraw, and it lifts off. And, ah, oh, this relief, oh, it's gone, a little blighter. And then it starts to itch. Right? That's, you ever done this? <laughs> this is the cycle of mosquito bites. Now, that's a very, very ordinary thing. But if one has the kind of presence of mind, isn't interested in the mind, not just kind of interested in comfort. If I'm interested in comfort, Forget about Buddhism. Right? Because Buddhism is not about comfort. It's about understanding comfort and discomfort. So I take this very, very simple example and I, and, I, and I learn from it. But how do I learn from it? Not through an opinion, but through observation, through attention, through you know, every now and then losing the plot and killing the thing. Oops, there goes that precept. And then, oh, no, no, you're supposed to not kill, okay, be patient. So you're kind of struggling with it. And then, oh, so, so yeah, this is, what does it mean to be fully conscious to discomfort? And it's not a problem. And you notice the resistance. So you let go of the resistance. Not a problem. And you begin to find the peace of mind, which can see the arising of discomfort, the sustain, the, the discomfort staying for a while, and then the cessation of discomfort. And one's identity now, not identity, maybe one's, one's reference or refuge, say, is now with awareness of change rather than desire for comfort. Just in that little, in that little scenario. Just in that little scenario. Huh? And that becomes a, a, a very helpful lesson at an intuitive level, not just at a book level. And this is something that when you, know, you see something like that, it begins to strike you as you live your life because you saw how it worked, and that's how insight works. You see in your heart, ah, I see, yeah, that's how, that's how desire, resistance to discomfort, uh, patience with desire, desire ceases, the mind's peaceful, 
And it's not just peaceful because the mosquito's gone. It's no, because now I found a place in my heart which can be with discomfort. Right? And you know, if you add those lessons up for 40 years, they're powerful. They're very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. Um, take something, like, like another example, say, monk goes to the hermitage and he says, yeah, this is nicer than my place. <laughs> now, I'm not fully conscious to that. I do what? I... I become arrogant and rubbish to the place. Uh, you've got too many trees. <laughs> Arrogance. Or, if you're not arrogant, get into kind of self-criticism. Oh, I should have started in Oregon. <laughs> Why am I in, in Ontario? <laughs> but if I make it fully conscious, what happens? And, that, and that's the skill. That's the skill. So I'm, I'm there and then that arises in my heart. Now, if I stay with that, the arising of the feeling of, of uh, compa- the comparison that my mind has produced, I don't do it deliberately, do I? I don't like wake up in the morning think I'm going to be I'm going to have this experience. No, it's just the nature of change, the nature of consciousness, the nature of my conditioned mind. But so I make I make allow this to become conscious. That means I have to be quite present to the whole situation, not just to my verbal interactions with my fellow monks in that situation or the lay people, but also my inner world, don't I? And that is possible. This kind of inner vigilance is always possible. And inner vigilance isn't a demand that I feel a certain way. It's rather the making conscious of the way I do feel. That's different. Uh, there was a question about anger. Like, Buddhists think we shouldn't have anger. That's not, that's, not, that's not the program. Being fully conscious of anger is the program. Restraint on hurting people, yes. But being fully conscious of anger is different than thinking I should not be angry. And that's a much more interesting kind of uh, exploration. So, back to the monastery in this monk from Canada. Um, feeling the way he feels. Now, what happens when I'm fully conscious to a feeling of comparison? Well, I take my stance now with the awareness of change, even though I might not put it that way, but I'm aware of this condition having arisen now in the heart. And I can feel it. I can feel it in my chest. I can feel a sense of self wanting to grow into, into thought. I can feel the mind wanting to compare and, and so on. But no, no, just stay. Make it fully conscious. Now, what is this like before I think about it? Before I conceptualize it? Before I create a self around it? What is it like as feeling? And if I, if I stay with that same practice that I'm doing with sound or with the body, if I stay with that, then it arises, it stays for a while, and it ceases. And it's in its cessation... I come back to a sense of open presence and what arises in the heart is mudita. Joy for the trees and these guys having a beautiful monastery. Right? Because now my heart is available to that. Before, my heart's not available because I'm I'm comparing. And to think that I shouldn't compare also will not work. Because that's just happening. That's just the way the mind's conditioned. But if I allow this to become fully conscious... 
and I have taken refuge in awareness of change, and I've done it again and again and again with all the millions of mosquito bites we get in ordinary life, if I've done that, then it's quite natural to feel this, to sense it go through the body, to know its cessation, and then the heart's available to an open-hearted experience, which is mudita, or gladness, at the well-being and success and beauty of a situation. If I don't do that, and I either become arrogant, as I said, or or just get caught in self-thoughts around it, then the heart is not available to the way things are. It's merely functioning through old programming, through uh, old histories, through the endless reiterations of self and you know, the whole business of suffering. That's, those are kind of pretty simple things. And yet, same, same practice, isn't it? I'll take something more difficult. Let's say someone betrays you. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've honored them in whatever way and they betray you in, in relationship or business or in, in whatever way it might be. Very painful. Very painful. Now, as a sort of card-carrying Buddhist, you can say, well, I shouldn't feel anything, which is rubbish. You do feel it. You could judge yourself. You could say, oh, gosh, you know, why am I so reactive? It's, you know, but that's not really making anything fully conscious. So to be fully conscious of being betrayed is a more difficult task because the desire mind does not want to face that discomfort. That is a serious discomfort. So not just the mosquito now. It's something that really, really impacts you in the heart real strong. And so the mind, habitual mind, then runs towards blame, runs towards self-blame uh, or some kind of sense distraction, anything but face the rawness, the rawness and, and, and huge discomfort of being betrayed. So it's more difficult. But the game's the same. It's the same thing. You can see how it's more difficult. So what happens is, you know, it's usually we get, if, if something like that happens, we get kind of maybe overwhelmed by it or reactive, but at some point, at some point, we begin to see the reactivity and we remember the practice. And the more we have done this kind of bhavana, the more we tend to click in uh, more readily, more quickly, more um, more efficiently, I suppose. I don't know what the word is. So at some point, we we say to ourselves, let, let this be fully conscious. Now, this is a different kind of mosquito bite. It's like, the, it's like a dragon, like a wasp has bitten your heart. And, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And now because we have, a, we have a, a ground of practice, we've done this many, many, many times, we can be with a feeling of betrayal. Now, that, what does that require? It requires a lot of patience. Because it is so unpleasant. It is so unpleasant. I don't want this. I just want this to be here. But as I, as I allow it to become conscious, and I have the confidence that this is the path, and I don't go into the verbalizations around it, and I don't create a self around it, I don't go that route, but I bear, bear witness to the burning. And it is a burning, these things. I bear witness to the burning. What happens? Well, once again, my reference point now is awareness of change rather than the objects of change. The objects that do change. 
my reference point is awareness of change. I, with forbearance and patience, I bear witness to the pain in the heart, and it is painful. And I bear witness, and I bear witness, and I'm patient, and patient, patient. Eventually, its strength recedes. My mind runs into thoughts about it. I go back, I go back, I go back. And as that energy of that is no longer fed with ego and wrong, wrong thinking, its energy dies away. It ceases. And I see the heart. I see the heart where even that is okay. Even that feeling of distress in the heart can be endured. And a kind of confidence then builds in my intuitive mind that it's okay. It's all right. There is a refuge. There is a way to be with this. There is a way to be with this. And the mind begins to notice the peace of cessation where this this energy ceased in the heart and and the refuge is in, in that kind of peacefulness. Are any objects, is any object, can any object fulfill you? Any sound, sight, emotional situation, monastery, teacher, partner, body, food, any, any, any sense experience, any object, any mental experience, can it fulfill you? Well, you have to ask, what is fulfillment? What do you mean by that? Well, um, Certainly, these things can be pleasant. So, certainly, it's much more pleasant not to have a mosquito biting me than a mosquito biting me. That's certainly more pleasant, undoubtedly. So, in my life, I, all of us do a certain amount of work and, and make a certain amount of effort to make life comfortable. And that's only natural. So, the monastery... The center, beautiful places, the way the monks take care of the hermitage and the way you're now caring for this, this is, this is lovely. So we engage in life in a way where we try to create comfort, we try to create beauty. It's the best we can and there's nothing wrong with that. But it will never fulfill you because it's always fraught with disappointment. It has disappointment inherent in it. But if you're making fully conscious what's going on as you live your life, as you try to create beautiful environments and create safe havens for your own life and so on, if you make conscious the way things are, when things, when disappointment comes into the mind, then you say, oh yeah, even this is disappointing. And it's okay, because that's not your refuge. But if you think any object is your refuge, then you're toast. <laughs> this is the nature of ob- the objects. Can objects satisfy? Can they fulfill you? Not to reject. Not to you know. Like if you if you ask me, do I want tea or coffee? Do I want milk? I'll tell you what I want. But I know it's not nibbana, <laughs> right? So one of the things in Buddhism, it does. Sound, you know, sometimes we can get so so serious about it. We keep, we you know we we lose the sense of humor and, and, and that, you know, become sort of, you know, you think you have to wear a hair shirt to be a Buddhist or something like that. So there is joy, there is that, but what is, what is the real, 
what is what what is your goal here? What is your goal? What 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 is the Buddha asking of us? And he says, well, from what I can understand, that all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory. Not we hear that again and again and again. But if you take what that means, what does that mean? That if you are searching for fulfillment in an object, then you haven't understood that. You haven't really seen that. You think that well, well, if I get another monastery <laughs> or if I come to this monastery then I'll be really happy and all the monks will like me all the time and I like it all the time it's delusion isn't it it's delusion and yet that's what the mind can do so without dismissing the fact that we can we can do things we can be socially active we can create good dharma centers and good monasteries without dismissing that these are not a refuge they're an aid they're a help but any, all objects, all objects are unsatisfactory, uncertain. Now, what does that contemplation lead to? If you've really contemplated deeply, not, not just as a kind of uh, Theravada cultural peace that you believe in, because that doesn't work. We believe in change, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe in anatta. But deeply, you know, deeply, if you, if, you, if you contemplate that deeply, then you realize there can be no place to go. And yet you go places. So if Ajahn Sumedho invites me to Seychelles, I'll go. Right? But you realize that the, the unconditioned, the, the peace which is beyond this, this, you know, these changing things has to be something. It has to be here and now. It cannot be a matter of time cannot be outside of you, cannot be an object. So what are you left with? You're left with a sense of presence, full conscious presence, awareness of change. And the more one imbues that as a perspective, the more one, you have to contemplate that deeply. And not just, again, not just the Theravada cultural piece, which you take on as just another cultural artifact that you believe in. But you really... You take it on board deeply as a kind of contemplative principle. You see, of course, any, any movement away from the present moment cannot be the goal. And, and, and that is, I think, what one way we can talk about renunciation. Renunciation, certainly as uh, there's a kind of ascetic principle of renunciation that you find in Theravada Buddhism and I suppose we sort of represent that. But deeper than that, why? Why, why, would, uh, why would anyone live celibate? You know, why not have an apple in the evening? Right? It's not immoral. None of that's immoral. Well, because the whole point of it is to discover that which is not dependent on causes and conditions. To realize that which is not conditioned by causes and conditions. And what prevents one to do from doing that is the pursuit of desire, the desire for objects. And it does not work. It does not work. Trouble is, it seems to work. Right? If it didn't seem to work, it, this path wouldn't be tough. So I always like to give and <clears throat> the example of, of uh, poison ivy. You know, this, the modern age, with all its podcasts, I suspect you've probably heard this already. 
even though I've never been here. But anyway, I'll go for it. <laughs> so you have poison ivy. You have poison oak here, I think. We have poison ivy in Ontario. And uh, so I brush my skin along the poison ivy. The liquid from the plant goes in my hand. And it itches. So what do I do? Scratch. So I scratch. Ah, oh, ooh, it feels great, doesn't it? And then I look at my hand. Uh-oh. I've got three times as much disease on my skin now than I had before I scratched it. So I begin to realize at some point that freedom from disease is going to come about if I forego the scratching. So I have to forego the fulfillment of the scratching. I have to go forego the pleasure of short-term satisfaction for long-term end of disease. And that's the predicament we're in. Right? That's the predicament we're in. So I, I, I kind of realize that. And the itches, I scratch some more. <laughs> then I make a determination. I'm not going to scratch. I'm in the shower. I scratch some more. Not easy. And I'm, I've been through this one. <laughs> but at some point, at some point, I realized, Verdamo, you know, you're going to be a piece of raw meat if you keep doing this. You've just got to stop scratching. And there's a kind of steely determination, isn't there? To, no. Oh, come on, a little bit. No. <laughs> no. Huh? And so you, 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 and this is where the patience and, and, and renunciation comes about. And it does not come about through some sense of guilt, like oh, I shouldn't enjoy myself. No, it becomes about because one's search now is for the unconditioned. One's interest is in the, 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 the deathless or the unconditioned, the unformed, these kind of words we use. And that's a very logical conclusion you come to. And, you know, your intellect sees that. No, it can't be outside. It can't be a sight. It can't be a sound. Can't be an emotion. Can't be a social situation. So your 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 tendency to move to those falls away, and you begin to abide as witness to the desire to have comfort over discomfort, and you begin to feel the mosquito bite, and you begin to realize, oh, discomfort feels this way. It arises and ceases, but that which knows is beyond desire. Is not desire. And that's where the peace of the mind lies. And it's very subtle. Very subtle. We don't notice the peace of just being witness to the way things are because it's kind of grey. Like when I when I ask you, just listen to sound. It's a ho hum, isn't it? Nothing much. But sustain that for twenty four hours. See what happens. That takes you to emptiness. Because the more you can abide in this sense of full conscious presence. Notice, notice when you wouldn't. How am I doing here? Talking too much. Um, notice how when uh, when I ask you, listen to sound. I'm not asking you to listen to a, per, a particular sound, or, or even better, I say, let sound become conscious. To me, when I do that, and, and language is is personal, but it's a kind of helpful language for me when. When I allow myself to do that, there is less of a doer, less of a listener. There is more listening. 
Like just allow this moment to be the way it is. Being rather than a doer. And if you can sustain that for long periods of time or even short periods of time, you begin to touch the emptiness of the mind. Empty of a doer. Still there's content. There's still volume and there's still perception and so on functioning. But there's no longer the sense of a doer. There's being. There's still a sense of presence. There's no longer the sense of an active participant trying to do something, to become something, to get rid of something. And that's non-desire, non-resistance, non-becoming, these kinds of words that we use. And you discover that more and more in these very simple ways of sound is this way. And then you try to apply that to the more complex parts of your life to the discomforts, to the the emotional patterns, to the disappointments of life. Someone disappoints you. They disappointed me. (laughs) Right? So if they were different, I would be happy. Maybe. Or, disappointment feels this way. So in a social sense, let's say I'm I'm, I'm involved, uh, let's say I'm a manager of ten people at work, And on the social side, I have to tell people, no, you can't do that. No, you can't be late. I'm sorry. No, your work isn't up to scratch. Or, yeah, that was very good. So I have a a social responsibility. So if I feel disappointed and it's my responsibility to produce a product, then it's my responsibility to sell someone. You know, I, I found you very disappointing, actually, your performance, which is fine. We couldn't live life otherwise, right? And that's that's the social context of our life. The Buddhism isn't a kind of doormat philosophy where people can just run all over you. So we have the social part of our life, but then the inner vigilance is this feeling of disappointment as something that we hold on to. And then disappointment. I get to know disappointment. I get to really know it inside out so that it doesn't seek another object. I just know it's disappointing. Disappointment arises and ceases. And what does it cease into? It ceases into that silent presence, full conscious presence, which is always there. It's not a matter of time. And it's not an object which you have to find outside of yourself. It's a matter of just letting go of objects, of letting go of the search for objects, of letting go of the desire for objects, of letting go of the resistance to objects, and so on and so forth. So, you listen. You listen. And there's listening. And the more we apply that very, very simple principle, um, the more adept we become. This is bhavana. We become better and better at it. Um, I often talk about fear. I've experienced a lot of fear in my life. I know every flavor. Chocolate, vanilla, terror, anxiety attacks, performance anxiety, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, sitting here, I'm not afraid. Now, this isn't a kind of self-testimonial. It's just to, to maybe encourage you that when I started doing this business of talking dumb, I was just so afraid. And I'd just have to run. I'd have to run to the toilet for this kind of a talk. Great laxative. Maybe five, five, ten. Really, 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 like you know, panic attacks. And I, you know, I contemplate that a lot now, like self-consciousness. I, I remember being in Chicago airport, you know, way, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I was so shy that I grabbed a used newspaper and just hid behind it. <laughs> you know, I was waiting for another plane. And now, walk through Chicago airport, no self-consciousness. 
Now, I didn't do that as an act of will, because if I could do it as an act of will, I would have done it 30 years ago. I had to wear it out. And how did I wear it out? I gave talks and felt the fear. Right? I'd come up, <laughs> lips would be shaking. You know, if I had to take the water, my hand would be shaking. I think about it, it was awful. It was just a, this horrible torture. And yet I knew, I knew that if I didn't do that, and I just tried to find my own little shell, my own little cave and wherever, I'd always be running away from that mindset whenever it came up. So it was very, very important. So then I, you know, Mopo Semedo, he would, he would say to me, welcome it. I mean, welcome it. Are you kidding me? It's awful. He said, yeah, but he was right. That's right. He said, well, you welcome. You welcome the pain. Not in a, in a way of self-mortification where you hurt yourself, but you welcome the suffering. You let it come into consciousness. And then what happens, its fuel dies away. Its fuel dies away because one no longer takes it personally. It's karma. This is my karma. This is the way it worked. It came through me. And, the, and, and, and so you get a kind of two things happening. You get the arising of these kind of karmic forces of extreme discomfort and suffering. And you find a peace within them, within, within the discomfort. You find a peaceful sense of presence and trust and confidence. But also their energy dies away. So there's a kind of double profit there. But, vice versa, when they arise and you don't pay attention to them, and you create a self around them, and you distract, then you create the causes for more of that in the future, plus your mind is very, very confused. So there's a kind of responsibility there, uh, urgency to, to, to not run away from these things. They're very, very important to make conscious. And they're not, they're, they're not, a, they're not like a fault like this fear that I felt. It wasn't a, a, a fault of mine. I certainly didn't look for it. I wasn't hurting anyone. It was just the, the way that this mind had been conditioned for whatever reason. So it's just the way it is. And being with the way it is, the problem was not the fear. It was the desire not to have the fear. That was the problem. And that took me a long time to figure out. It's not the fear, man. It's the desire not to have the fear. So then I would do metta practice, I would do a suba practice, I would do, I would try to, like, I'd rehearse a talk, or I'd have notes, but I never looked at the fear. And then I saw, well, what's, what is it? What is the problem? And then I'd start to make it conscious, full conscious presence, feel for this way. And it was awful. But then I began to see, it, what's the resistance to the fear? What does that feel like? And then as I, as I saw that, I said, okay, now I understand. I understand. And then the fear could begin to to wind its way the way it had to wind its way. And so with all the kind of different sufferings that we experience as human beings, one has to embrace it to understand it, you know, to really know the nature of fear. I have to let it become conscious. Because if I just judge it, react it, distract it, and all the rest of it, I'll never understand it. So listen to sound. You have to wait. You listen to sound. Sound comes up into consciousness. Feel your knee. You wait. The sensation the knee comes up into consciousness. Feel the terror. <laughs> Same principle, more difficult. Huh? Not in ways to hurt yourself, but more difficult. What arises from that kind of 
emptying out of karma is really the Brahma Viharas. The, the, the heart now is free. It's available for compassion. It responds with gladness. It has a sense of peace with the way things are. The heart is available. And it's not manipulated. That's just the natural freedom of the heart when it's not bound by these things. So it's a very liberating, liberating path, but it does. It requires a lot of, a lot of forbearance, a lot of forbearance. Okay, I'll leave that for your reflection.